Nick, when we take a photograph, all we're doing is taking light that exists in a certain location, or, you know, we could be adding uh, light of our own through flashes and stuff like that, but we're taking light in a specific situation and we're freezing it, you know, uh, the light that bounces off something and hopefully we, we get an image of that object or, or that scene. So what lighting situations are your absolute favorite lighting situations? Well, I could say my absolute favorite are the ones that make it, it just happens to be the ones that make it easiest to take a really good looking picture. And that's very strong, low angle, natural light. That's it. If you have all that going for you, man, you can do anything. <laughs> now, there is another kind of light, which is dim, low light, you know, that's diffuse and indirect. It's the exact opposite. Actually kind of like that, too, because it's really challenging and it kind of forces you in another direction. It simplifies things in another way because you don't have any help from natural contrast. So you got to like really look for the right the right shot. So I guess I like extremes the best. Okay. Okay. When I um, am walking around or, you know, I'm somewhere, somewhere especially where I've been before, and it is that moment right after the sun has gone below the horizon, that mm. twilight, I look around and there's something about that for my eyes that makes me want to take a picture. Now, I don't think it translates as well into the photograph as it does for my eyes. But that's the light I look for. That's the light I'm drawn to. Okay, now that you say that, when I'm in Tucson in the middle of the winter, that's exactly the best light. And it's, for me, with a with a Fuji digital camera, it lasts for maybe 20 minutes after sundown there. And then it's Oh, wow, black. that's a long time. The reason it's stretched out, though, is because this neighborhood has these wonderful... Uh, Far, far apart street lights that are very dim, kind of weird orange light in order not to spoil the star view because it's the desert and it's a thing down there not to have too much uh, light pollution. And so you, what happens is as the twilight just turns down, like, you know, the way it does in the desert, it just goes from bright sun to black in this perfectly graded, you know, decline. But on the way there, the yellow street lights start to come in and fill in so that there's enough light to shoot all the way through, you know, all the way till complete dark. And then you could still shoot just by streetlight, but it, it's the best when the two are in balance. So you, you, it's like right before sunset, you start shooting, even though it's just at sunset and there are a dime a dozen so that you're like warmed up. And then as that light dies down and starts to balance with the streetlights, there's this perfect few minutes and yeah. whatever I shoot during that period always looks great. If you know, it's it's a really good time, yeah. There's there's a time that I okay, I used to do a lot of night photography when I was first in photography classes in the 80s when I was in college. I uh would I would t take a lot of night shots mostly because I worked a very late schedule and I had late in the day classes often. Um, and so I was a little bit more of a night owl than I am now as an adult. I would go out and there was a period, there's that, there's that twilight where this, where the, the ground, the area, the, the trees, the stuff that's on the ground is dark. 
and is often lit by a street light. So there's really good harsh light coming in, but the sky has, is light enough that it, it registers as light as opposed to as dark. And I love those shots. Those are, some, those are some of my favorite. In fact, I, I'm constantly thinking about going out and shooting, um, after dark, but, um, you know, I'm usually heading to bed cause I get up at 515 to go to work. Well, that's, right that's kind of the beauty of being as far south as you are though. Cause I know in Tucson, uh, it gets dark pretty early in the winter. Like, yeah. you know, or actually most of the year it's between six and seven, you know, there's very, there's very little, not like the extreme variation we have way up north. And that makes it easier here. We have the, that twilight period we're talking about in midsummer. It lasts for a ridiculously long time because the sun goes down diagonally. It doesn't. Oh, yes, yes. You yes. know, it twilight goes on and on for an hour. You know, it's, we, and then, you know, even an hour before sunset, it's all good. So that blue hour, whatever you want to call it, is extra generous the farther north you get in the, in the summer. In the winter, it's the other way around. You know, you have a little bit of good photography at midday on a good day. <laughs> Yes. I remember, do you remember the, um, uh, the movie Gregory's Girl? No, I don't. Okay. It takes place in Scotland and I don't know whether it's in Edinburgh or, um, Glasgow. I, uh, I, it's been too long since I've seen it, but, um, I remember this scene where he is being, Gregory is being stood up on a date or he's, hoping that she's going to show up and whatever. And he's standing in front of a huge clock and the sun is just setting and the clock says 1030. And I said, well, they didn't even reset the clock. You know, I mean, the clock is not, you know, is obviously wrong. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, from my yeah. experience, you know, um, yeah. growing up in Minnesota, the, the sun will go down at 930 in, in the, in the summer, in midsummer. But in, you know, uh, uh, you're, uh, you're probably at what, the 46th or 47th parallel? 48th. Uh, 48th. Okay. Uh, Minneapolis, where I grew up, was on the 45th. Well, Scotland's what, on 54, something like that. I don't know. So, it's pretty high. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, so they, I've been in Alaska, I've been in Alaska for midsummer and that's insane. That's yes. all the way up there where it basically doesn't get dark and yeah. it really throws you off. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's right. It's very different. I, I think it would be really nice to find that glow, uh, that glow time that it would be, you know, right about the time you get out of the bar. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that's that's light for you. How, how about we start the uh, homemade camera podcast? Sure. What do you think? Should we talk about some materials, uh, things that we can we can use to make cameras from? Yeah, I think we should talk about tools and materials. How to how to actually get started on making cameras and camera parts. Well, I think we should start with the most sort of cheap and simple, like the ones that a kid would use. Not just because they're cheap and simple, but also because if you mock things up in cardboard, paper, tape, and glue basically make a model ahead of time uh, with the with the proportions accurate it's much easier to to build several cardboard models or you know foam board models and 
until your measurements all work, and then to use that as a template, then to start right in with your fancy, you know, mahogany or brass or whatever else you might want to use for a really good looking camera. That that sounds just like making a maquette for a sculpture. Yeah, so it's worth making a model. And then the cool thing about these homemade cameras is you can probably stick a lens on that cardboard first version and just go out and shoot it. (laughs) Right. You know, and see light proof and, and you know see dimensions and balance and uh and things like that so okay so paper um what do we what what kind of papers do we need to use i mean obviously it needs to be thick enough to be light tight but are there other um uh, factors in the paper that we need to worry about well i usually think in terms of cardboard or something a little stiffer um than paper but you know uh uh i don't it depends. If you're trying to make something last forever, then you do need to think about whether it's archivally, you know, stable and not acid, full of acid or whatever, um, that kind of thing. And you know, maybe the same with glue, any glue and tape that you use. But if it's just for temporary use, really all that matters is if it's stiff enough and light tight enough. Then you know, it's right. Fine. One of the things that I do, um, if I am out in a store and I look at something, because I, I, I am constantly looking at things saying, oh, well, that could be the body of a camera. You know, um, one of the things that I'll do is I'll take my phone and I have an iPhone, but this works with all phones. Um, I'll, I'll turn on the little flashlight mode and I'll put the flashlight right up to the surface of the paper and I'll look through. And if it comes through, then obviously it's not light tight enough to take out into the sun. But if it doesn't come through, I I kind of figure that that's going to keep my film from being fogged too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a quick, handy, always in my pocket kind of uh, tester with that. So, right. Um, and another thing is, most cameras ought to be a matte black on the inside, so that any reflected light that is coming through the the allowed path when you open the lens won't bounce around and fog your image. So. Even a light tight camera lets light in while you're taking the photograph. And if it hits anything shiny inside the camera, it may actually uh, cause damage. So since you want a matte black interior anyway, you can often just use some matte black paint on the inside. And that'll also add a lot of light uh, proofness as well. Right. Right. Exactly. I've uh, I've done that a couple of times. Um, when I was first building 3D printed cameras... Um, I didn't, I didn't know that there was opaque filament and non-opaque filament. And I was using some non-opaque filament and I had to spray paint it, um, just to get it near opaque. Um, and, uh, that can take a, a few layers. It's much better to start with the opaque material. So, okay. So is there any concern about what kind of uh, glue we use or or the tapes the different kinds of tapes only if you're trying to be archival um you know if you if you if you want something to last forever then there are better quality materials that are uh supposed to last a long period of time and not react with you know their adjacent materials sure um one of the things that i've found for light tightness is metal foil tape which is actually the tape that they put over heating ducts and cooling yeah, ducts. Yeah, it's and it looks nothing like duct tape. It's much better than duct tape. That's that stuff is great. Yeah, 
And it's shiny and, and pretty, too. It's shiny and pretty. Uh, put it on the outside because it's shiny and pretty. Uh, and you don't want to uh, spray paint it. But if um, it's really, you know, for, first of all, it's metal. It's fully opaque. Um, but it also, because it is a foil, it t- does tend to tear. So it it's prone to pinholes and, and right. tears metal, at corners and seams. And, yeah, right. right. Uh, but, but it does a really good job of, uh, of keeping, um, the light out. Uh, another tape is the 3M opaque black, um, like masking tape, uh, or artist tape. Uh, I have a roll of that and that works very well. I use that. Is that a, is that a paper tape? It is a paper tape, um, oh. but it is opaque and it's, um, photographic tape or I, I forget exactly what it is but uh you can so buy it's, this you thinner can buy than gaffer tape something oh yeah 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 much much thinner and it has be a, really useful and it, it has a stronger adhesive so it doesn't peel off uh-huh. um you know one of the things about gaffer's tape is you got to remember especially when you're out shooting um a uh a a taped on lens uh zeiss lens from, from your hasselblad like my <laughs> like my friend Nick did that no 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 not no. necessarily it was the pinhole lens it was the pinhole lens oh it was the pinhole lens it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> no harm was done okay no harm was done okay don't leave your camera good. out in the sun for two days if it's just held together with gaffer tape that's right the, that's the <laughs> gaffer's tape will that's let loose it is a temporary tape so well depend it depends a little bit on how well you stick it and you know how much surface area to load and all that stuff. I like it a lot. I like the fact that it doesn't leave a sticky residue. I like using it for experiments like I just did because you don't have a mess to clean up afterward. Uh, but that paper tape sounds a lot better for a lot of uses. Like I'm often using tape to shim out and make a little, if I need a little more distance between a lens and the film or something, I'll use tape very often as a shim. But gaffer tape is a big jump in size. So if you want something maybe more uh, precise, right. have- use the paper. Have you ever used Gorilla Tape? Um, no, I never have. They advertise it quite heavily, but I've never, uh, I've never used it, and I don't know what its qualities are. Well, uh, does it look like duct tape? I have no idea. Uh, well, if it looks just like duct tape, then I have used it. Um, okay. Because so, and, and it, it's just, it's just another version of that, that peculiar tape that some people name as a, after a bird, and other people after the tube. Right, right. It's all um, confusing. The duck, the gorilla, isn't making it any easier to understand. Yeah, if you believe Wikipedia, uh, duck tape is the actual name of the tape, and that was the original name of the tape. That it was um, uh, supposedly, you know, uh, impervious to water. That was the idea. Um, <laughs> and but there are lots of people who call it duct tape, right? Um, and- and, and then use it on ducts, which isn't a very good idea. Which is a horrible idea because <laughs> then, then, then the tape will rot off, and you'll just have these hard bits of former glue uh, oh, everywhere. A, so oh, that's a good uh, theory. All right. Yeah. Well, I think I think uh, most people can figure out how to glue and yeah. tape things together. Okay. So so what's another material that you? One of your primary materials. Well, wood is one of my primary materials. I um, now remember I got into this whole thing with making pinhole cameras out of wood, and what I did was you know I kept seeing specifically 
uh, I think the mirror and then Andu came along and, um, you know, the, the, uh, zero image, mm-hmm. uh, those, I kept seeing those cameras and I said, well, I can make beautiful wooden cameras too. Um, so, uh, it turns out I can't make beautiful wooden <laughs> cameras, but, but I can, I can no, use no, the You just wood. haven't figured it out yet. That's all. Right. Yeah. Uh, wood's forgiving. Um, uh, but I'm not necessarily forgiving of the woods. So, <laughs> um, so but, you're saying the, the wood forgives you? No. Well, the, the, you know, it's the, it's the old saying woods, wood is forgiving because you can always, you know, shave it down some more, add in some wood putty or, or do any of that type of stuff. But, um, yeah, it's right. Uh, and, the, but yeah. that's start leaving, you start leaving the beauty behind when you get there. And I, right. and I feel the same way about it. I like, uh. I like the way wood looks, but it's sort of, for me, it's more like a finished material. It's something that once right. you already know what you're doing, then you take trouble. Otherwise, it's just, it's just strong cardboard until you're really committed to a design. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. Now, one of the things that I have found difficult in sourcing wood, and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the 67 Woody, um, is that if you go to Home Depot, or Lowe's or some other equivalent store, what you're going to get is you're going to get um, probably the lightest, the thinnest wood you can get is is quarter inch plank. But often those have been sitting in that store so long they're cupped um, or there's some other, you know, they're, they're not really usable. But um, say you want to use like maple or something like that. The only right. thing you're going to, you're going to find it... M- it may be in half inch, but more likely in one inch stock or three quarter inch stock. Um, it's difficult to find beautiful woods in the one eighth or one sixteenth thickness that you really want. Well, you can uh, get you're building you can a get camera. that you can get that one sixteenth or something close to it if you order door skin. So it's a basically a one ply sure. plywood. And yeah. you can get that in, in a roll and cut it up with a knife and use it. And it's available. That's, um, but, that's... The, but the real thing that you want to get skinny wood is you want a, t- a desk or tabletop planer. So a small planer, like less than, you know, a 12 inch wide, small, inexpensive tabletop planer. You just get a thicker piece of wood and run it through a few times till it's exactly the thickness you want. And there are a couple of reasons why that's cool. One, you can get exactly the right size wood. Um, which might you might want something that's a little more than a quarter, but maybe not, a, you know, so five sixteenths or some perfect size. But also if you're using wooden layers to build up a, a precise distance, the planer allows you to make your final shim the exact right thickness. And you can do it by trial and error. But if you end up needing, you know, a seven sixteenths layer to get the lens to the perfect place, you can just plane a solid piece of wood to seven sixteenths you know, cut your hole in the middle and you're, you're there. So there gives you a lot of control because um, it makes perfectly parallel uh, piece of wood. The only problem with that is that planers are about uh, $200 items. Well, no, um, that's if you buy cheapest. a new one. That's yeah. if you buy a new one, but it, it yard sales and stuff, just keep your eye out. You'll find one. I've been, I've been looking. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I just tried to get one recently. So uh, what kind of, what, 
species of wood do you find that you like working with or, you know, creating a, a final project out of? I just, um, I've, I grew up in a place that was mostly maple trees and I'd still, that's still my favorite wood. It just, it is, it's pretty relatively easy to work. It's relatively hard, but it's very beautiful usually. And it's, you know, it's dense, but it's not super heavy. It's just a really nice, nice choice. Now, not perfect for everything, like very figured maple, which is extra pretty, tends to warp in unpredictable ways. So maybe isn't ideal <laughs> for a camera, but, but it gets used in musical instruments, you know, so it's a, a lot of it is just how you use it. In fact, that's what I, if I wanted to make really, really nice, uh, cameras, I would look at musical instruments as inspiration because you know, I have I've relatively used to make them, and it's something that, along with boat building, but that's sort of a different scale than <laughs> than a reasonable camera. <laughs> that's sort of the most advanced kind of craft woodworking I can think of. I and, hadn't uh, I hadn't thought about that because yeah. maples. Okay, I live in the south. You can get oak, you know, in my yard, <laughs> you know, right. um, but I can't get maple. Um, I've oh, a hard enough time good, finding oak's hickory to smoke with, but, um, yeah. but yeah, oak, oak is nice, but oak to me is a little bit, um, uh, it's a little unfriendly not, to work with. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, it's like somehow it's hard and splintery at the same time. And I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's right. the dust isn't much fun to breed. It's not my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I hadn't thought about, there has to be. What about a, pine? A source. Yeah. Well, what pine about is pine? A, that's a, that's a Southern wood that's got Absolutely. a lot going for it. It's light. It's strong. Uh, the grain tends to be straight and clear. I mean, that's a great wood. Um, it is a bit mushy when you're, yeah, uh, yeah. So you have to build it. things a little thicker, you know? It's yeah. Like, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That. And if you're going to paint it, you know, who cares what you, uh, and speaking of that, um, one of my sources of wood is, uh, and I've talked about this previously uh, on the podcast, um, is a local cabinet builder. And in fact, I'm on Friday, I'm going there because I need a new um, desktop stand for my uh, monitors because I have a new computer. And um, I just asked, you know, can I have some of your scrap, you know, one eighth, one quarter uh plywood you know and they've got tons and tons of oh yeah the marine plywood's plywood. the good yeah and cabinet makers in marine so i get my scraps from a boat builder yeah. marine plywood also are you get you can find sizes in millimeters you can find solid plywood that has no voids anywhere in it all kinds of good stuff so yeah and yeah they're it, they accumulate scraps so fast that they they need to throw them away which costs money so it's never a problem yeah They'll, yeah, they'll often have unusual offcuts too. So like, you know, long, thin pieces. I used to work in a cabinet shop. So I, used, I actually built a hut that I lived in for a while out of the scraps from milling wood in a cabinet shop. <laughs> did it, did it pass the uh, inspection? No inspector ever set eyes on it. <laughs> no, and it wouldn't have either. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, um, Metal um, is probably where we're going to move next. Um, I, I'm I'm going to step aside and let you talk because metal, um, you know, other than working with uh, a a few bits of aluminum, um, metal is a little bit outside of my 
um, purview. Yeah, well, I've worked with metal for a long time, yeah, but there's still tons that I don't know about it. I mostly work with steel, which is not going to be most people's first choice for camera parts. Although, if you look at some of the coolest cameras built out of the kinds of things you can work at home are the press cameras, like the Graflex, Speed Graphic, Crown Graphic, that whole family of cameras, because they... They combine a lot of really great materials that normally don't go together in a precision instrument, but they figured out how to make it work. So they're very, very good cameras to study. And they combine wood with a lot of stainless steel. And stainless hmm. steel is actually not that hard to work with. I mean, you could get it in... It's expensive and fancy enough that it's not hard to buy small pieces of of it, you know, that are convenient to take home in your car and work with. It's fairly easy to cut with any hacksaw-type saw. Um, and file, you know, the edges smooth or whatever, and drill and all the normal kind of machining techniques can be done with it. And, you know, a piece that's like a piece of flat bar that's three quarters or an inch wide by an eighth of an inch or less thick, you can just bend it over in a vise and, you know, hit the corner with a hammer to make a nice sturdy L bracket or something like that. Oh. It's pretty easy to do basic work. And what you need is a hammer, a vise, a file, and a, a saw that cuts metal. And you can just make, and a drill, but any drill will work if you're just drilling a few holes. Um, you, ideally, a drill that turns at a lower speed. So if you use a really sharp bit and turn it at a low RPM, you can drill metal all day without um, trashing your bits. So. Oh, okay. If you go fast, you know, you'll ruin the bit because it'll overheat. Oh, okay. That's, you know, that's the yeah. type of thing that, that, uh, that I am completely... Right. Well, so that's um, steel, but if you just yeah. drop down to aluminum, aluminum can be worked with just the same exact tools you cut wood with. I mean, you could cut aluminum with a you know with a circular saw if you want. It's uh, you know a little noisy and so forth, but it's it's easy to work. A router is a good tool to use with it. Drills are really easy to use with it. Um, it's a little bit soft, so you generally. Oh, well, there are a lot of different alloys though. Some of them are stiffer, yeah. but just the general run of the mill aluminum, you'll you'll stumble on. Um, you just if you want something sturdy you just make it thicker than you would with steel because it you know it's going to be softer and bendier but that's not that big a deal and there is aluminum and some old cameras it is more prone to corrosion so if you work around the ocean a lot you want to watch combining it with other metals so that, you know that might it might tend to corrode pretty quick but it's okay with stainless if you use it with stainless um <clears throat> and then you know brass i mean you can get all kinds of sheet and rod and flat bar and brass, um, architectural bronze, which is really a type of brass. Um, even copper can be, you know, used if you don't need something to be stiff. If you, if you don't mind it being flexible, you Copper's know, good. um, I just went and bought some brass sheeting, um, because the, um, RB 67 back that is actually currently on the 67 pinhole, uh, the RB 67 back has um a uh a slide that uh i think the, it's a pro s back it has so a slide the, you have the wrong you have the wrong dark slide in it is that what well I mean? no no the dark slide has a little notch that um connects and in, in that notch is a little lever that moves up and down um and if in situations where if you remove the dark slide, you're going to expose your, you know, essentially when the back is off of the camera, um, there's a little trip 
that keeps that dark slide in. It won't let you um, remove the dark slide. And then there's a little button that you can press to to um, remove the dark slide, you know, and and release that whole system. The problem is that where, how I have it on um, this particular camera, I can't access that button. So what I need, what I did was I just went out and I bought some uh, brass sheeting and cut it to the right size using a mat knife and um, uh, put it in there so it doesn't have that notch so it never trips. And um, and that was actually really so nice to work. So you just ma- basically with. made a patch over the void in the in the dark well, slide. No, no, I just put in a whole new dark slide. It was a oh, whole, okay, yeah, right. Just, just made one without slide. the notch. Got it. Right, right, exactly. Well, that's a really handy um, skill, also because it's it's not uncommon to find dark slides for sale, or, or I, I mean, uh, film holders for sale cheap because they don't have the dark slide with it. So yeah, which you can make I your own is, dark slides. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, and it's, believe me, it is not difficult. It's uh, 0.10 brass sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought mine at, you know, the local uh, Ace Hardware. So it's going to be available to pretty much everybody, I would say. Um, so, well, and then, uh, yeah, and so, and of course, all sorts of objects. You know, if you go to the thrift store, you can find baking pans, all kinds of things that have useful sizes of metal already there. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Yes, and so nice to have uh, snips. That's another good tool that will snip sheet metal. Um, there's three kinds. There's ones that cut straight. There's ones that are easier to cut a right turn and ones that are easier to cut a left turn. I just use the ones that cut straight for pretty much everything. Uh, if you're if you're not making right turn cuts all day long, it mm-hmm. doesn't make that much difference. Sure. Um, but so there's a couple of special tools that I, I want to mention for wood and paper and cardboard and plastic for everything. There's an old fashioned type of uh, saw that I call a frame saw um, or a coping saw. So it's it's a sure. saw that there's a frame that's shaped like a C with a handle, um, and then the blade is connected across the open. A mouth of the sea and they're usually designed so you can take the blade out and rotate it at different angles um and the beauty of that is that because you can take the blade off and then reattach it you can cut holes out of the middle of things which you frequently need to do in uh, making cameras so if you drill a hole in a piece of sheet then you can poke the saw blade through reconnect it to the frame set it so that the teeth cut on the downward pull stroke and then jewelers have a cool tool, which is basically just a little piece of wood, you know, about, I don't know, a couple inches wide and six inches long, say, something like plywood or sturdy hardwood. And you cut a V halfway in from one side. Well, first drill a hole maybe two inches back on the center of this this flat piece of wood, and then cut uh, with a saw a V going from the outer corners to that center hole. And it just it just makes a handy support. So if you're cutting out the oh. middle of a piece of plate you set it on top of that and you sure. keep the saw right at the center and those fingers will support what you're cutting and then you can just move your hand up and down and then rotate the metal you're cutting instead of moving the saw and so it's like turning yourself into a little bandsaw yeah. but it's it's a but because you can cut and put back together the saw you can cut out the middle of things and it just it cuts really well and they're sharp little blades they they can make really tight corners because they're just a thin little strip of metal with teeth. Um, if you can picture what I'm talking about, it's a really handy way to make fairly intricate shapes or just cut the hole out of the middle of the lens board. You know, for right. Instance. Right. That does remind me. Um, 
one of the things uh, going stepping back to wood, um, one of the things that I uh, taught myself to do when I was make, trying to make those uh, pinhole cameras uh, was taught myself how to dovetail uh, a joint. And there are YouTube videos galore on how to do that. And it is easy and it really makes for a beautiful um, finished product if that portion of the uh, of the wood is going to be showing. And that's, you know, that... Uh, I, I did a couple of um uh of cuts with coping saws for various things um uh at, at that time as well. Um and I even for a while was using a coping saw to make my dovetail cuts because it needed to be really fine right on the line cuts and uh and that's a precision tool. Yeah, and that that little support so that you can cut on the downstroke with it piece support it it makes uh even more precise it's very useful so then when we can cut metal drill holes in it and all that people tend to think in terms of soldering and welding metal but you you can often join it more practically with little bolts or screws um sometimes you know self-tapping screws or drill pre-drill a little hole sheet metal screws rivets pop rivets you know all kinds of ways and sometimes soldering or brazing is a good option uh, with steel, sometimes welding or even aluminum if you have the right equipment. Um, but so much of the time, you almost are better off doing a mechanical joint uh, that it's really worth considering or combining, you know, glue and a mechan and a screw or something like that, you know. Um, so, and I like to mix materials a lot, but I guess we'll get to that. Uh, that's the basics. Um, there's tons of good uh, information out there on how to work with metal, but I I think it's uh, I think all the best cameras have some metal in them. It's just such a great material to work with. One of the things um, that uh, leaving metal uh, moving into plastic, there's there's a little bit that kind of straddles both of those, um, and the process is the machining. Um, you know, uh, computer controlled, uh, machining out of a block of say, a little or, or even old thing. school machining where you just did careful measurements with oh, precise right. tools. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. I always tend to kind of rush past machining cause I don't do it myself, but yeah, that's right. a great, that's a great way to make parts. And actually while we're there, we should mention, uh, foundry work casting. I haven't done that in years and years and years, but it's actually pretty easy to make small castings at home. If, you know, if you want to learn another art, it's the actual materials and tools are pretty simple. You need a lot of fair amount of heat, but if you're doing something like aluminum, I mean, you can make a really small backyard propane heater that does a great job and just need a little crucible. And I mean, you could do your own foundry work too. And it just occurred to me the other day that I hadn't even thought about that, but there's a lot of uh, parts you could make that way. Um, there is a, uh, and I'm trying to get his name pretty, uh, or his, uh, Instagram name. Uh, it's, it's escaping me right now. Um, he, uh, if any of you listen to the, um, C41, uh, podcast, Studio C41 podcast, uh, where they interviewed, uh, Ethan from Camera Dactyl. Uh, he mentioned uh, a young kid who's doing a lot of work 
um, in in camera design. And I'm trying to get to the right thing. So I now have to go to my phone. I couldn't get to it on the computer. Um, but let me go to my message. Yeah. Um, Panomicron is his name. P-A-N-O-M-I-C-R-O-N. Um, if you go to his um, uh, page, you'll see that he's making a couple of really very, very interesting cameras. And, um, one of which he's looking at, uh, I believe, I, I believe I have the right, uh, person here. He's looking at machining out, machining the body out of metal using a, a 3D file, you know, so, mm -hmm. sure. um, so, you know, he sends out the 3D file and, and, and somebody machines it. Um, now he's, and it's a panoramic, um, 35 millimeter, uh, camera and he was looking at, uh, doing a body and then a lens cone and you would, you would choose which lens cone, um, for a 500 euro price right in that range. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and he's also working on another one that's very much like the Mamaya press camera, um, and, and has very similar, uh, qualities. And I think it uses a Mamaya press back, but, um, you, you know, that's, that is something. Now, well, so machining is machining is very valuable, but it is expensive and time. It, it is expensive, but and you are reminding me there is another kind of halfway thing to yeah, machining well, that's but, worth mentioning, which is water jet cutting. Okay, if you if you want any shape at all made out of a flat material, almost any material you can imagine, really consider water jet because it's incredibly oh okay precise okay and the yeah, same yeah. thing. You just give them a file or a drawing and. You'll get back exactly what you asked for so, out of so, almost any imaginable material. But it, but that's flat stock, right? As opposed well, to dimensional. But it can be pretty thick. It can oh, be pretty okay. thick. So if you imagine building up a more complex shape out of layers, it's sure. actually a very practical way to design and build. Sure, cameras. sure. The yeah. the padlock um, design. Yeah, concept. exactly that idea. Yeah. Um, the and that's something. And that's something I talked to. Um, uh, you know, um, back when I was doing um the wooden when i was really uh before i came under the influence of nick lyle uh and i was doing the um the lensless designs uh i was talking with a um uh, a student of mine who worked at a um wood shop and they had some you know uh machining uh uh devices that would um, are, what am I trying to say? Uh, CAD controlled devices that would machine, um, or not machine. What am I trying to say? Cut certain layers. Same, and same and we were talking yeah. about, and we were talking about building a camera with that. And, and I never really got the design, um, uh, ready to go. Um, but, uh, but that, but that's a process, but, but what I'm, where I'm going with the, with the cutting the, or with the machining is, you know, uh, so it costs you 300 bucks to make this camera body. Assuming, you know, if you have already made this out of say plastic, you had it 3d printed, um, a $300 camera body that does something that no other camera will do 
and, and you've you could and you've already worked stairs through. and not worry about it. right right well but <laughs> right. then and then it's it's permanent it's la- it's yours you know that's not that expensive is where i'm going i mean yes it's more expensive than i want to pay right now but if i come up with a design that i think is just absolutely wonderful and i want to do it out of metal it's not really that expensive no, when, okay when you, when you finally get to your perfect camera it'll be a bargain and right. then in the meantime, though, there's no need to make the entire camera that way. So the way I look at it is you you use the materials that make the camera function the way you want as affordably as possible. And then if there's something special you need a little fancier, you've got some, you know, something left over to get it. So Sure, absolutely. So, so okay, that's so why let's... I keep coming back to combining different materials usually instead yeah. of just using one. So uh, we talked about the 3D printer uh, um, and, and I can speak a little bit to that i've i've done it before on the podcast so if you're here listening to this episode you've probably heard me talk about it before um but the big thing to think about with the 3d material is and the 3d design is simply um because you know you need to make sure it is an opaque material um there are uh, some of the material, there are many different types of plastics and even wood composites that can be spit out of a 3D printer, but not all of them are are opaque. ABS plastic um, is generally opaque uh, in the darker colors. So it's, pretty, you, it's nice and strong too. It's strong and it's smooth and it is a it is a very nice material. Now as Todd says, um, you know, the, the guy who makes the Terrapin um, pinhole cameras, um, he, as he says, uh, printing with, with uh, ABS smells like you're getting cancer. So <laughs> it's, it's a horribly noxious material. So like in my situation where I, when I print, it, it's in a classroom, um, I have to print with PLA and PLA is made from uh, uh, plant starch. Um, and it's considerably less noxious. It does have a smell, but it's it doesn't, you know, encompass the whole room. If you're More standing like over food. it. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like French fries. Um, right. No, uh, but the, uh, but you, if you do PLA, you need the opaque PLA. And, uh, and I'll, I'll mention a brand here, E-Sun, so it's a little e, capital S, U, N, all jammed together. E-Sun uh, Pro, something, PLA Pro is what it is. Uh, it uses a little bit higher temperature than most other PLAs, but um, it does, it, it's opaque and I'll testify to that. Um, uh, and there are just a few other ones, but that's the one that I use. So it, that's your biggest concern. Now there, as I said, there are other materials you can you can print with carbon fiber. My little tiny printer will uh, says that it will do carbon fiber, which is a micro three D printer, um, and I'm going to test that one of these days. Um, so uh, y- y- you know you can do some exotic materials that might be very effective. Um, and, you know, if you couple those also, again, with some other materials, it, it works very well. While we're talking about plastic, too, um, 
there's the whole world of epoxies and uh, fiberglass and, you know, the whole kind of marine world. I know a little bit about that. And you can make some amazing forms using something like epoxy and fabric. And, you know, you could make pretty much any imaginable shape and have it be very strong and opaque and strong and, and light and all the, all the things you want. So that's another direction that you sure, could go, basically. And, and you can... You, technically you can, it's plastic yeah yeah and you can uh you know put it together like you would lay fiberglass you just i think it'd be glass, interesting right? to that would be an interesting one to approach as a composite kind of idea too so that if you made your your printed plastic like as a as a skeleton right um imagine it printing out a grid basically in the shape of a camera and then you could take the fabric and epoxy and basically lay it on like you're building a, a fiberglass boat on a frame right and you could end up with like an amazing, strong, ergonomic thing, but the insides of it could be all squared off and, and you know, precise um, for, your, for your lens mount and your film back and all that, you know. And essentially what you're doing is uh, laminating layers. Yeah, um, right. You know. It's, uh, really, it's, it's like building paper mache, only the stuff's permanent. Well, you right. can use paper mache for that matter. I mean. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely there's and and there's no reason why you couldn't i really um, like the idea of doing a 3d printed grid that sort of gives you your precision and your and your skeleton and then you could just goop on whatever you wanted and make a really fun smooth rounded interesting thing yes i'm i'm sorry my brain just went off on on doing a paper mache um camera now my mother is a fiber artist she uh, was a costume designer and taught costume costume design, and she worked in costume shops since I was a little kid. Um, and then when she retired, she went into quilting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, you know, she's a little bit older, and she has some uh, motor skill lessening. Um, and she also has an, an issue with her neck. So hunching over a sewing machine or hand sewing, which is a very posture bad. Right. Uh, very bad posture, let's say. Bad that. for the eyes and the posture and everything. Right. Else. So so it's something that she can't do anymore, but that doesn't mean she can't be a fiber artist. So no. she has been doing a lot of work lately with balloons and then layering um fabrics across them with decoupage or, or whatever mm-hmm. material you know and decoupage is glue you know i mean that's all mm-hmm. it is sure yeah. so i'm just there's no reason why one of those cannot be um you know a camera body uh, i saw I, I have friends who made beautiful kayaks in the 60s and 70s by yeah they built they built a regular fiberglass kayak and then they just like went and bought some really crazy paisley fabric you know and it from the fabric store and did their final layer with that and then clear over the top and it's wonderful i mean you end up with this beautiful smooth curving three-dimensional form with like a tartan plaid or paisley pattern on it that would be really fun way to work too were any of them named ethan and do they have a kickstarter with a four by five camera no (laughs) (laughs) for for those of you who have not seen the camera dactyls yet um uh, one of the things that they are, uh, one of the things that they sport are um, bellows that are made from multi-colored fabric, uh, pattern fabric, you know, uh, um, 
often um one of our one of our uh listeners and members of the um Flickr group uh took a picture of himself with the same material um in uh uh in, on a shirt and um uh yeah, as matching as the camera, yeah, matching the camera, yeah. Absolutely. Well, so yeah, so yeah. fabric should be on our list um, for not just for bellows, as in the cameradactyl bellows, but also for a coating for you know a camera body or uh, so. If you've got some bland looking wood, you can actually basically glue fabric to it and then clear coat over it and have a, a really durable, strong, hard wearing and attractive surface. Absolutely. And here, just a second, I'm going to get the guy's name because I, eh, there it is right there. And it's Matthew Joseph was, uh, has, has a shirt in the same material as one of the camera dactyl, uh, bellows. It's the I was thinking, uh, sugar skulls. So I was thinking that, yeah, what you want to do is you want to get a really great suit with some extra fabric, you know, and then have your camera yeah. made to match your suit. Like you got to do it that way. It'd be too <sighs> hard the other way around. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you, or uh, uh, the classic MASH episode where um, Trapper John gets a suit, a pin, pinstripe suit, but the pinstripes are going horizontal. <laughs> <laughs> so you could do a pinstripe suit, um, Bellows. I don't think the material would be would be right for that. So, okay. So, uh, one of the other plastic materials um, that uh, James Guerin uses uh quite a bit on his six by six pinhole cameras is um i i i'm gonna use the term lucite but i think it's not the right term it's um like similar to plexiglass um yeah just uh, acrylic sheets and one of the reasons why i think he does that is that it can be milled um Mm -hmm. by uh you know computer control mill quite easily so there's no reason why we can't uh, get some of that and that's um you know once again sourcing it might be uh a little bit difficult off the top of my head but i'll bet you if i go to a hardware store i can find some opaque acrylic lucite type stuff so while we're talking um, about milling i would say it's a good time to mention routers so mm-hmm. i just have a really small laminate trimmer which is a very small light duty router but it's real easy to work with. It has a, a fence so that you can, you know, very easily set it up to cut a certain distance from an edge and you can adjust, adjust the depth of the cut. Um, and because it's small and easy to use, I, you know, I just use it with fairly lightweight wood or, um, you know, you can use it with plastics, uh, anything like that. And it makes one of the things you can do that's super useful. That's just very basic is say you have a, a board that's three quarters of an inch thick. You can run right down the edge with the router set at, say, three-eighths depth and create a rabbit, which is a little step. And when you have two boards with rabbits and you stick them together, it's a, it creates a light, tight joint because there's a zigzag. Um, and that's a really handy, basic thing. Or if you're designing a, like a light, trying to make a light, tight lens board mount or something like that, being able to cut that kind of shape really simply is very useful. You could also do it by building up layers. So you don't need the router. You know, you could make a rect a rectangular square or a circle with a you know a hole that is going to be your entrance and then a smaller one that's going to create the step. You you get the same structure that way. Um but if you want to work with solid wood, a router is super useful. 
Yeah, I have one. Uh, I think it was a you know Harbor Freight um, uh, in uh, in the U.S. Harbor Freight is pretty much the cheapest place to get tools that are new, and I'm going to use air quotes for that. Um, and it works, and it was under a hundred bucks, uh, and it works very well. Um, you know, it's just yeah, yeah it doesn't a, have it's to a, be a fancy it, one for. Yeah, it has to sit on a table, um, but it it works perfectly well for for uh for my needs um Mm -hmm. let's see um i'm trying to think if there's any other plastic material that we could really use effectively um i'm think i'm wondering if there are any pourable materials you know that that harden anything like that um uh, well i mean there's the classic old materials that i don't know how they made but you know things like bakelite i mean I'm not really sure what what the process was for those, but there, there's probably all sorts of other things that are more like ca- you know casting processes that don't require necessarily require super fancy approach. But I you know it's I find it's often easier to build something up than to melt it down and pour it in a mold because it, the mold's a always a, a really you know expensive difficult part of the process and. You, you don't have to do that unless you're doing multiples. If you're just making one one camera, just make it directly and don't worry about that. Um, okay. What about um, besides lenses? What would we use glass for? Well, there's uh, um, ground glass. So being able to put a, a rough, you know, a rough uh, surface on a piece of glass so that you can use it to view an image. Um, and then you could, I mean, you could, you could make the whole thing out of glass if you make it light proof. I mean, glass doesn't have to transmit light. Um, so there could be other, other material. You could use it in a camera design if you wanted that for some reason to look pretty or whatever. I am going to report back from, from something that we talked about last week. Um, and, or last episode, excuse me, not last week, two weeks ago. Um, it was the idea of making a ground glass um, for, uh, you know, for, to view a lens through. So I've been building a camera. We're going to talk about it more in the next episode, but I've been building a a camera that uses two and a quarter by three and a quarter inch film and two and a quarter by three and a quarter inch film holders. And one of the things that I needed was a ground glass viewer. So I 3d printed, um, essentially the holder you know, uh, I did the measurements and, and so like a little frame, a little picture frame kind of thing. Well, no, I just, I just, you know, uh, took a took a film holder, and and measured it and um, and figured out exactly where in that film holder the film was, and then mm-hmm. I I essentially cut out the back of the film holder. And I have this little slot, or not a slot, but a, a, a square, a rectangle, that I can place the ground glass into. So, right. it so it's sits, like a little box with a with a hole in it to see right, through. Right. Right. So, so I mean, it's the ground glass viewer. And what I did was I just took, I, as I said, I had some plexi laying around, um, and I took a two hundred fifty grit, or it might have been two twenty. Um, Sandpaper. And yeah, and an orbital sander and sanded mm-hmm. off. Now that works to a certain extent, but I was shooting it today. I shot it today for the first time and I went out into the bright, sunny world 
And I found that it was, you know, actually maybe, maybe the problem was I didn't, didn't think that I needed to put a hood over it. That was you the entire problem. <laughs> I need to, to put a hood over it. Um, but it, I did not get, get a very bright image compared to the world. No, no, I, you, but you need some kind of a hood. Uh, yeah. However, you're right that a, a higher quality glass makes a big difference. And, yes. Yes. And but, uh, things like a Fresnel lens make a big difference. And so, yeah. Sure. But, but in a pinch, um, or if once again, you need some ground glass for, um, for checking the focal length of a lens or checking the, you know, the focus or calibrating, you don't need the best, sure. best one in the world, no. you know, and not, so no, just always, 220 yeah. grit works perfectly fine. Um, and yeah. I also did one with a, a, a sheet of, um, uh, plexi and just put, um, uh, scotch tape across it and that worked pretty well too mm-hmm. um so that's you know that's there okay so i'm just uh just reporting back uh on that that yeah 220 will work perfectly fine yeah so glass i mean it's it's useful to be able to cut it so if you don't know how to cut window glass with a glass cutter that's something to learn that's yeah. a, you know another real simple thing and then you you're talking about using a sander but there's also more sophisticated ways to uh right Right, to, to, gr- to, gr- glass, to grind so glass, glass where you put two pieces together and you use yeah. various grits of polishing compound and yeah so um uh but it doesn't have to be super high tech i mean and if it came to making lenses it you know they made some pretty good lenses by hand back in the day so that's something you could learn how to do right right uh, it's mostly just a lot of rubbing <laughs> right know? well and and, and i and, and we've we've seen those lens polishing devices where they take a blank and um you know it spins um you know the the blank usually spins and then an object on the top usually moves back and forth um mm-hmm. you i mean if you had or you could rig up a system like that yeah you could do that you would you would kind of need to know what kind of a curve you were trying to get but um oh sure no so yeah but uh i'm not saying that designing and making a lens is easy i'm just saying that the technology isn't that complicated once you learn the tricks yeah right it wouldn't be it wouldn't be too hard to make ourselves if we knew the design that needed i fooled around a little bit with glass too and you can i mean if you're not trying to make the best optical thing in the world you can get pretty close just casting glass in a oh okay sure and 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 so you could really do the whole thing i don't know how high quality it would be but you could really do the whole thing with a kiln some ground up glass and uh um you know polishing compound and a piece of leather or something like that i mean you really wouldn't need uh are you you familiar started are you familiar with the arts penland art school it's in north carolina it's in uh just north of Spruce Pine, North Carolina. Well, my wife's yeah, family has a cabin, um, a well, a house um, in the mountains, yeah, half an hour away. And um, I, every time we go up there, I, I go up ju- just to look to see what's what's in the display, you know, because they have a little store and the, yeah, um, uh, and every time I go up there, there's been cast glass. And I yeah. look at it on the schedule, and it's like right in the middle of my semester. There's know, it's no a great way process. for me to do it. Ah, I want to cast. Class. But you know what? You can you can do it. You don't need the class. 
You need okay. a kiln. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it really isn't that hard. Um, That's right. The, to, I mean, you basically, if you get some workable glass and you put it in a container that won't melt, and, sure. and bring it up to temperature, it, the glass will melt. Now, the trick is you need to anneal it afterward. That's the part where you have to know what you're doing. And I don't even so, know what the word means. Well, so depending on what the glass is, you're going to have to bring it back down to room temperature very slowly over a set amount of time based okay, on the yes. type of glass, the thickness of the glass, a whole, yeah. you know, bunch of, there's a formula. Um, and most people who do this professionally have special programmable yeah. device that will bring it slowly back down. But there are probably workarounds because too much annealing isn't a problem. So if yeah. you can, if you, you know, you could do it manually. It's not, uh, you don't necessarily I, need a lot of equipment. Uh, a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, um, I, uh, you know, I grew up in Minneapolis. I went back for a vacation, for vacation visiting, um, and, uh, with a friend of mine, I, uh, we went to a glass blowing workshop thing where you make, you just make a paperweight, you know, it's not, it's not mm -hmm. super, you know, I mean, you're, you're not chihuliing anything. Right. Um, but it, you know, you, you get to do the design, you can make choices of the color, you get to actually do the work and, uh, and they did put it in a, um, yeah, a cabinet to to let it cool down over twenty four hours. So, yeah, yeah, that's what you're right. that's what you're talking well, it, about. It, and it actually had electric elements. It's called an annealer, and there's there's actually yeah. electrical elements and a and a controller to bring the temperature down gradually. And if you bring right. the temperature down too fast, the glass will have uh, the tendency to fracture because stresses are built up. Right. Because um, it, right. it's a it's a it's a fluid. It's not actually a, a solid, and it, it needs right. to be treated it differently. Right. Okay. Even, you know. Well, anyway, so. We'll go, we'll jump on away from glass. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that the final thing on the the list is, is repurposed parts. And that's goes yeah. from, you know, actual camera parts to anything you can find that's kind of got the right characteristics or shape. And that's almost the most fun of all. Like, yeah, if you can find something that really was never meant to be a camera that is perfect. <laughs> right. Awesome. It's right. fun to do that. I, I walked through, okay, so one of, one of the cameras I am going to build one of these days is out of PVC. Now, uh, PVC pipe, you know, just go yeah. to the yeah, hardware yeah, yeah. store. Um, now I had, I was trying to make at one point a curved plane, um, uh, curved plane pinhole camera. And I, uh, so I got some PVC tubing. Uh, or pipe, cut it in half, and then I cut a window out of it. Um, but it, so you end here, up with a, a flexible like guide for the film, kind of right, thing. right. Well, that was the that was the idea. Um, but the problem was that here's what I thought. Um, but but uh, Todd um, uh, was talking about it when he was on the Lensless podcast. Um, you get to a point where there is so much friction that is built up where the film is touching so much plastic mm -hmm. that it's really hard to advance. And if you have that curved plane, you have a tendency that film wants to bow into the gap and right. will come right, you know, will come right through that gap. And the that film, was, the that was a problem the that I ran into. Right. So you're wrapping your film as like the hawser that's supposed to hold a 
tugboat and you wrapped it partway around the bollard <laughs> and it's starting to get to be hard to drag it around yeah um sure so what's what's the solu- <laughs> what's the solution to that is it to have less surface area in contact with the guide or is it I, a different I don't material know. Maybe I don't metal know. Or smooth metal might be less clingy or something. Yeah, yeah, there could be that. I do have yeah. um, a printedpinhole.com uh, pinhole. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, the clipper, the clipper, which is a six by nine. Or no, is it six by 12? Six by nine. Six, six by nine, I think it is. Um, and that has a curved plane and that works well. Um, and so I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I was doing wrong. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back to, I'm going to jump back to metals because we didn't, we talked about machining and, and casting and all this stuff, but we kind of skipped the thing that I do most, which is forging. And what you're describing now is, you know, needing curved stuff. So the other thing about a lot of metals is that you can bend them, uh, and they'll remember the shape you put them in and stay there especially steels but also aluminum or whatever so don't forget to think about that and a lot of my favorite cameras from i don't know the 50s and earlier were made by forming sheet metal and they use dyes probably to make you know precise complicated shapes out of it but but the principle isn't is still a good one where if you take thin sheet metal and fold the edges you know to build a box or whatever um and you know seal it up you can get a really light, strong, sturdy, build up fairly complicated shapes. Um, and that's something to consider too. And then, you know, the hybrid is again, a good idea. So your, your frame or, or, you know, basic shape made out of wood, for instance, and then sheet metals just to fill the gaps is another way to do it. Or, or, you know, if you think about the, um, what, and this is, this is a design, uh, that that goes back to those pinhole cameras that I was building. Um, that I and this design I never made. But if you think about the um, the old trunks, the old wooden trunks, often had yeah. the corner pieces right. made out of metal. Um, sure. Just a you know uh, because that's you know the the part of it that's going to take the most abuse when thrown on a ship. Um, that's uh that's a way to to combine metals and and start making uh pretty pretty designs and you can buy those corners that's a reasonable approach although for some reason when i picture doing uh, building something i i imagine the opposite making a wooden sturdy wooden frame with uh rabbits so that the thin metal would be let in flush with it i don't know why that's what's in my head but it sounds good to me so, uh, yeah, so anyway, combining as many different things as makes sense. Is use each material for what it's best at or easiest to use. Get your uh, sources for tools and materials. We've talked a little bit about that so far, but um, what are your favorite places to go to uh, to get the the materials? Well, I mean, just kind of, we'll go down. I think we should just go down a list of different kinds of store and and then you know the sort of things you might find. 
I'm going to start with art supply stores. Some of the really mm -hmm. big ones have an amazing variety of stuff. Um, and a lot of things that you just aren't going to find anywhere else. So, you know, anything from high quality cardboard or even black cardboard, right. specialty glues. Um, I, I use drafting tools a lot, you know, traditional drafting tools to draw with, but they're also really useful for building. I mean, if you need a square, like the perfect plastic square from a drafting set, is, you know, it works really well. Or, um, you know, <clears throat> paints. And then a lot of these art supply stores are sort of spilling over into the whole craft world. Um, and a lot of those stores kind of put me off, but sometimes they do have like sort of oddball bits and pieces that you can use, like strange small sizes of wood or whatever, you know, uh, they can be a good source for small parts and materials. And, uh, you know, there, uh, there are certain things that, uh, they have in those craft sections, uh, that we can certainly repurpose, um, uh, I, I have spent a lot of time down those craft aisles looking at things uh, to make handmade books from. Uh, I used to do quite a bit of that, although I've done considerably less. I think I've been making cameras instead. Um, but there are lots of things that they have um, in those. Hold on, areas. hold on. You need you need to make a you need to make a book camera. A book camera? Yeah, sure. Why you not? You you need to bind a book that is also a camera. All right, go back to your your hobby aisle. And and that book, the subject of the book has to be how to make this camera. <laughs> sort of like that, steal this book. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Make this exactly. book into a camera. <laughs> Shoot this book. But you know they have uh, also a lot of things like um, I have sit sitting on my desk in there. I have a small metal flower pot, and um, that and it is going to be a lens cone. One of these days, it is going to be a lens cone. I'm going to, uh, because it's beautiful. And there's no reason why I can't make that into a lens cone. So, yeah. um, so that's, uh, those types of things are, uh, are quite a, um, quite good sources. Uh, you just have to kind of think outside the box a little bit, uh, uh, or, or what, I hate that term actually. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to say my, my, saying about myself is I think outside the box, open up the box right there. That's where I think right outside that box, you know? So, so you just lift me out. I've got, I, yeah, you can, uh, but um, my idea, what I'm, what I really mean to say is you have to see what they can be other than what they're being sold for. So, yes. uh, so there's that one of the, th one of the um, best sources for tools and specifically, you know, uh, we talked about that, um, uh, the camera repair book and the first section of the camera repair book. And I can't remember what his name is, but we've mentioned it many times is how to make your tools. And you start off with pliers and you, you hone them down until you have, um, essentially, uh, a spanner wrench. Uh, an adjustable spanner wrench because it's on pliers. Well, I sure. was just in the jewelry aisle and they have mm -hmm. those for sale. I don't yep. have to make them. <laughs> you There's know? a lot of great tools in the jewelry section. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And a lot yeah. of them directly apply to, to repairing and making cameras, little screwdrivers, all that stuff. And then the, the other place to look for those kinds of tools, though, my best source of them are yard sales, especially if you're around a lot of where a lot of old people live, because a lot of old timers have amazing sets of really high quality jewelers, screwdrivers 
and they, you know they bought them back when they were really well made and then didn't use them all that much so they're in great shape and they're inexpensive that's how i get most of my small tools and also old dentist tools are, are really useful so one of my grandfathers was a dentist and i inherited a bunch of little horrible things for torturing people and <laughs> instead i use them for camera work they're so useful i mean just a million a million things just when you need a little funny bent pointy thing there it is you know i finally broke down and bought a really nice set of um jeweler's screwdrivers because i was i'm sick of having you know out of i don't know what you say you get eight different screwdrivers four of them have the straight blade broken off because the metal's not <laughs> good enough you know so i'm yeah. I, seriously i have probably three partial sets in the the desk drawer that is right next yeah. to me right now yeah and i bought some of the you know cheap radio shack type ones and they're okay but they, they tend to wear too quickly and the old ones last a lot longer um and and they work better because they don't they're so small that if the steel isn't very high quality then they're going to bend or shear off now if you're lucky enough to be in a large uh city you might have a hobbyist store for woodworking um there is yeah, some one. of them are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, again, one of the things that I'll do, uh, I'll talk about is often their stocks are much thicker. Um, I mean, you can get all the exotic woods you want, but it's a, you know, but it's a half inch board. Um, and, uh, so nice you're, size. you're going to have to play them down. Uh, uh no, or if you or make a whole camera out of half inch board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a little. You may bit have much. to. You may have to think of a design that's more about a skeleton and some other coverings. I mean, I guess you can fig You can make a design that'll work with most materials. The other, so okay, so the hobbyist wood stores tools are overpriced, right? Go back to the flea market for the tools, but they will have a few specialist things like cabinet scrapers. Um, well worthwhile. They don't cost much. They're what is tools. a cabinet scraper? It's just a flat piece of spring steel, and you what you do with is you you file one edge with a flat file um, to, to to create a burr along the edge of it, and you may rub it on a, a, a smooth round piece of steel too to help like kind of forge that little burr, and that little burr that's hanging off the edge of this flat piece of steel becomes a cutting tool, and you hold the thing in your hands and draw it across a, a piece of wood at a fairly steep angle. So you're holding it almost perpendicular, uh, but leaning a little towards you. And as you pull it across, it just scrapes off the the top layer of wood, very thin, even slice, leaves it very smooth. So it's kind of like a planer, but it's just a handheld piece of metal. Uh, and it's generally used for finish, precise sca scraping and finish work on old kind of old fashioned cabinet work. Anyway, there are these kinds of tools that are you're not going to find anywhere else. Like that's where, you know, you have to go to get that. Um, <clears throat> or, you know, if you find an old planer and you need a blade for it or something like that, the, then, and then, but I think that as a source of small pieces of wood uh, and that kind of, and hardware too, don't, a lot of those hobbyist stores uh, for woodworking will have a ton of specialty hardware that, so that grandpa can make, you know, little chests and things. So there'll be little corner pieces, like you mentioned about for trunks they make small ones, specialty hinges, knobs, latches. <clears throat> uh, you know, if you want like a knob that tightens up on a bolt, say to make a, um, 
the front standard tilt on a view camera. They have all that stuff like ready to, to use. They have wood inserts that are pre-threaded. So if you need a quarter 20 insert to have a tripod mount on a piece of wood, you can just buy that insert and stick it in a hole with some glue. You know, so there's a whole lot of direct, directly applicable camera parts that are for sale through those kind of hobbyist shops. And, you know, if you don't live in a big city, I'm sure all those stores have an online catalog. So you could get this stuff anywhere. So um, you put on our list here metal supermarkets. Now, I am clueless. Well, that's um, a chain. That's actually a chain store out of Canada that is really? pretty prevalent in the Northwest. I don't know how far they've spread through the U.S., but I think they're pretty widespread. Um, and there must be other equivalents. So wherever you live, there is you know some kind of metal suppliers that are used to selling big chunks of metal to construction industry. But there's also... These smaller places like the metal supermarkets that are, that sell small pieces of metal to small companies, hobbyists, or someone who doesn't need a, a big order. And they, they're, because they cost a little more, their, their standard way of working is to cut things precisely to size for you. It's more of a service. So if you want a specific piece of metal, you can just go there and buy it and they'll provide it, uh, quickly and easily. And they're, you, you know, a sort of, it's a great service, and they often have um, things like plasma cutting and maybe even shearing, and you know different ways of cutting metal to precise sizes. So, wow. Okay, so I just uh, I just looked them up, and there's one in Jacksonville. So there's one about there an hour away from me. Yeah. So uh, cool. Great. Well, so if you if you ever need like a very specific, and it's not just steel. I mean, they carry all kinds of metals. So. Yeah, yeah. I was just looking at their aluminum. So, Everything from brass, that, bronze, aluminum. Yeah. Right. And you can also buy online from them. So yeah, no minimum go. order. Okay. No minimum yep. order, but it's going to cost you 800 bucks to ship it. Okay. Um, okay. And so well, not necessarily if you're ordering small stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're just making a camera, man. I know. Right. Exactly. So a big source for me is marine supply stores. So I live in an area where there's a lot of boats and boat building and boat repair. And so there's a lot of stores here, but most places near water, even if we're talking inland, if there's a lake, you know, there's someone who works on boats, right? So there'll be a supply source or you can, or again, you can find this stuff online, but marine supply, uh, and especially people who supply boat builders will have much higher qualities of epoxy. If you really want to work with epoxy, you want to look at the good marine supply stuff because you can mix your own custom glues for all kinds of applications. It doesn't take much knowledge if you read a little bit about it. And it's it's just way more useful than the stuff you used to buy in a hardware store and stick two things together with. So you can make space-filling putties and all kinds of uh, specialty stuff. Uh, so that's worth looking at. And then <clears throat> they also would carry um, unusual hardware. So a lot of small and interesting fasteners um, that you might use to put a camera together would be something you would find in a marine supply store. Much more variety sometimes than than in a hardware store. Uh, cord, if you want high quality cord for, you know, any kind of like straps or whatever. Um, fiberglass, we talked about that earlier. All those kinds of products are available. So, Oh yeah, and the good plywood too. We have... Uh, we've already talked about the hardware stores, eBay, Amazon has everything. Um, you know, so those are all 
um, yeah, and go to, go to Home Depot or within wherever. the U.S. And, and, yeah, and go down like the wrong aisle. Like go down into plumbing and see what you see. You know, right, or, or right, irrigation. Or, <laughs> like, you know, one, one of the other useful stuff back in there. Yeah, one of the other things that you can do um, is, uh, and different places have these, and they're called different things. But the architectural salvage. Um, oh yeah, they're we, great. Yeah, uh, there are lots and lots of things that will be pulled out of old buildings that can certainly be repurposed. And yeah, um, right, and good wood. Like, look at broken furniture. If you want good wood, like the old yeah, that's good wood. That's actually something that I've thought out thought about quite a bit. Is drawers? You know, um, drawers are often you know have a very decorative front, but then the sides and the bottom and the back are often the type of wood that we could use, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you just have to, you know, sand it and polish it and you're, and you're good to go. Uh, I, you know, another material that is probably underused is masonite. That stuff's sure. really durable. That lasts a really long time. And you can cut masonite with a mat cutter if you want. Right. Um, and, you know, I've certainly done that, uh, plenty of times. And I, and one of the things that's really nice about masonite is that it will sand very smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a place where you have the film wrapping around a corner or a, you know, or a spindle or anything like that, oh, yeah, if you nice. make that out of masonite, you can get that glass smooth. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that is, uh, I've used that quite a bit. Um, and it's, it is dense. Um, so it does tend to be a little bit heavier, but it, it has no grain that you're going to run afoul of. Right. And it, and Dim- dimensionally stable. It's not going to Dimensionally shrink stable. Up, but... Right. Yeah. Exactly. Masonite. I can't really say too many good things about Masonite. I've used that quite a bit. So. If you've listened to the last episode or two, then you might be aware that Graham and I are attempting to rescue uh, these sad cameras uh, from from Graham, basically, uh, the other Graham from mm. Sunny 16, who had declared some sort of, uh, I don't know, intolerance campaign against these poor little cameras. And we, we rashly offered to uh, try and save them by fixing them up. So we got some of these. I, I I'm gonna. Graham, I'm gonna stop you, got you right the there. One that's the, you Hang got on the a one. second. Hang on a second, yeah. Nick. I'm gonna stop you yeah. right there. You're the one who got us into <laughs> all this, so I'm going to be. I, I, I'm playing the good soldier, the good friend. Uh, but I want to point out, you're the one who got me into this. So, but yes, okay, I yeah. See. Well, well I mean, and and you yeah. and you have bravely cho- chosen the worst. <laughs> The worst known camera to to start with, I believe that the Olympia or, isn't that the one you have? Yes, yeah, I I have the I have an Olympia, and then I have a, a Nokia, Nokia, whatever something, <laughs> some other one. Which you know something, I may okay. So I bought two. Um, is essentially right. the deal. I bought one that very much mimics a um. You know, the the end of the film camera uh, autofocus uh, system uh, called the Olympia. And then I have another one that was like a little bit more 
mimicking a manual, um, you know, like a, an OM-1 um, kind of uh, camera. Um, but the Olympia, it, it, I, I'm taking them apart one at a time um, so that I could, uh, so that I didn't get, you know, confused by what I was doing. Yeah, how about that? Um, but, uh, I, I decided to, to take apart the Olympia. So, um, I, and when I say take apart the Olympia, I, you know, got the screwdriver out. Um, there are only a few screws. Um, so the screw, you, you don't need any special tools. Um, so I, I started taking it apart and I, the first thing I did was take off this top plate. Now, one of the things about this camera is it has a motor drive. And as I was taking apart the, taking off the top plate, I got to a point where as I unscrewed this one panel, it started to advance the film automatically by itself. So I screwed it back down and it stopped. And, and so then I very carefully unscrewed it. Yep. I got to the point. So what I looked at was there were, I don't know, 20 gears in there, 20, you know, cheap plastic gears, which probably are, you know, don't, you know, aren't too far off of what were in those cameras. Um, the real ones, you know, the Canon and the Nikon and the, and the Pentaxes. Um, but uh, I stopped myself with the idea that if I get to the point and these things start to just shoot everywhere, you know, just kind of fall off. The camera would be then dead. The camera body would be dead because there's no other way to advance that film. So I stopped. I, I, I put the top plate back on. So I started looking around and trying to figure out how to get the lens off and the front panel. So, you know, the, the front panel of this camera, I couldn't figure out exactly how to get the front panel off because there didn't seem to be any screws. So I went for the bottom panel, which makes sense. So I took the bottom panel off and the bottom panel essentially is a holds in the front panel um, by, you know, um, it, it notches back behind the top panel and the bottom panel. And that's what holds it on. Now, there was one other thing that held it on, and that was the uh, self-timer. Um, in the manual, it said, self-timer, advanced accessory. So mine had the advanced accessory of a self-timer. And the self-timer worked, by the way, and it still still works for that. But I had to kind of break off the little arm because I, I, I think it was just glued on. Um, and so there was no way to get that front panel off without breaking off the arm of the self timer. So I have diminished the quality a little bit, but what I did, uh, so by, by taking off the front panel, the front panel had the lens assembly, including the lens and the aperture, but the body panel, the, the, the body still held the shutter. Nice. Now the shutter is, and I have, um, <clears throat> I have a video. If you um, visit the homemade camera um, Flickr group, I have put up a video, and I also put it up on uh, Instagram as well, 
Um, and it's a video of the shutter, uh, and, and how the shutter works. Isn't um, it a really fast shutter too? It, it, yeah, the, the, well, the manual says it's between one two hundredth and one three hundredth and mine timed out to be about one two fiftieth. Um, but what it is, is it is a disc. Okay. And that disc has at the top of the disc, it is held down by a pin. Uh, or a screw, probably, you know, a, a, or a little welded, uh, you know, uh, rivet. So type a, si- of thing. a single pivot at, at one uh, edge single of the pivot disc. at the top edge of the disc, right? And that disc has a little arm that comes up, a little um, hook that comes up out of that. You know, it's part of the the stamped shape of the disc. So it's the sh- it's the thickness of the metal. And that has, is held shut by a bow tie spring. And a bow tie spring is a spring that has a long straight part. It usually has a little circle and then it has a long other straight part. Um, and, um, and it, and it's also called a butterfly spring. That's the other bow tie. So it might have been made by taking a straight piece of spring. And then bending the middle of it around a mandrel in a complete right. circle, leaving so. And then it's not perfectly straight; it has a little V shape overall. Yeah, um, because yeah. it um, one of it one of the parts holds to the body; the other part of it is on is attached to the shutter itself, so that um, if you move the shutter out of the way. It will, the spring it. will return it back to right. its closed position. So the, the sprung position is the closed position. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has that little, that little notch. Now, when you press down on the shutter release button, there is a horizontal, that a horizontal, um, uh, piece of plastic that runs on a shaft um, left to right um, above, right above the lens or right above the, the shutter, excuse me. And as, this is really horribly difficult to, uh, to describe. So go watch the video. But what happens so it's is just, it's just going by and pushing the little uh, arm that sticks up. Right. So off, off the disc, so it's just wiggling the disc out of the way briefly. And then it's sprung. Yeah. Back. So, yeah. So what happens is on a spring, it when you push down, it pushes back this shaft that has an arm, um, and that and when it gets to its release point, it shoots back to uh, to the um, as you're facing the camera to the left. It shoots back to the left, and the arm grabs that little notch at the top of the of the shutter and swings it out of the way and then the uh little bow tie sh- uh spring puts it back mm-hmm. so so it is actually a really simple mechanism and it's a mechanism that you and I and anybody out there could manufacture yourself it mm-hmm. actually the thing that got me about that is all you have to do is is figure out how to make that little spring mechanism, and you're good to go. So that was or, actually, or just or just find it because if you take apart right. a bunch of old stuff, you're going to find those yeah. things. Yeah, 
Right, right, exactly. And, um, you know, and so, so, you know, since Graham of the Sunny 16 sent us on this test, thank you very much because you've now helped me design a shutter. So one of the problems with this shutter is it's essentially, um, a rotary shutter. Um, now a rotary shutter should spin all the way around, theoretically. Um, although, um, in this case, it doesn't need to spin all the way around. It spins out of the way and mm-hmm. then it spins back in. But as that happens, the left side of the shutter, the left side of that hole, that aperture, that maximum aperture is exposed first. Sure. And you're always going to have a gradient from one side. Right. Yeah. Right. And then the upper right is exposed last. And then as it returns, the upper right is exposed first and the lower left is exposed last. So it could be quite a bit of difference Mm -hmm. depending on how fast that snapback happens. Um, now, um, I have not noticed that when I, uh, took my baseline images, I didn't notice any difference. Um, I didn't know, I mean, I, then I went back and looked at them and I, I couldn't see any, um, any different side to side in the exposure on those images. So. Great. Yeah. Um, that sounds good. Yeah. So, so that was something that I thought was absolutely amazing. And, and if I had not been on this, challenge i never would have discovered that so um so the yeah other... the speed's really useful too because that's a completely practical for handheld shooting with most right lenses yeah right yeah now it, it it once again this camera came with a flash so that was a fill flash so i don't know how it syncs with that I'm absolutely baffled how a one. Well, it's no different than a leaf shutter, though. No, it's no different than a leaf shutter. I, the problem with syncing is with the, the mirror cameras. But if you if you've got a lens a shutter that's right there, up tight to the lens, uh, you know where the, the where the light path is really small and compressed. Okay. See that that gets you out of. I think that makes it a lot easier. I mean, you can synchronize leaf shutters up to a five hundredth pretty easily. Yeah, but uh, isn't that w- isn't that really because they're they've got an opening at the center that is is widening, and as long as it fires any time during that, it's going to get an image through. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I think. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's that hard. Anyway, if this thing has a flash already on it that did yeah. work, then it you did. should be fine. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah. Um, okay. So, um, the next thing that I did was, um, I took, okay. So now I have this front panel from the camera and the front panel had attached to it the lens and the aperture control. And it was, um, it has a rotational control, and I have the parts right here. Um, it has a rotational um, uh, disc on the lens that when it would rotate, it, it acted like a helical. It, it would move um, the front of the lens out, but that had no effect on the image at all. That was completely... <laughs> 
Um, it was just uh, to make it look like it was focusing, uh, even though it says focus free on the end. But there were these two really incredible discs. And let me, let me, uh, or yeah, I guess they're discs. And I put up a picture just before we came on the air today. Um, we came on the air because we're live, right? Okay. Uh, just before we started recording this today. Um, so if you look at, once again, at the homemade camera Flickr group, you will find images, um, three pictures of these two discs. And if you think of a, a wrench, um, a mechanics wrench, where at one end it's got the, once one end of the wrench, it's got the open head and the other end of the wrench, it's got the closed head. This looks like the open, open end of that wrench. And there are two of them. And they, um, and they have a notch cut out so that they can at the maximum opening there. It's a square. Well, it's a diamond shape, uh, but it's a square. And as they move closer, that so they're moving diagonally, they're moving along, they're moving along the diagonal of the square. So moving they, along the diagonal of the square. So Absolutely. it keeps the square shape, but gets smaller and smaller. Right. Exactly. Right. And, um, and they're, they're just made out of just plain old, just plastic. Um, uh, I thought they were metal. I mean, they, they kind of had the feel of metal, but it's just a very thin plastic. Um, right. and so once again, from this, I have learned how to make an aperture that works perfectly, that, you know, that works perfectly fine for a homemade camera. So now the question is, can you get bokeh squares? Can, yeah, well, you would, you would, you would get, you if would you get do, squares if you, on if the you end. Stop way would... down and and shoot into the sparkly water. Yeah, you should at least get some square little stars. Maybe. Yeah, the only problem is, well, if I stop way down, yeah, I guess I just you might get uh, a, an interesting highlight anyway. Yeah. Well, you're never going to be shooting a an f six point eight lens in that. With a two one two fiftieth of a shutter in the light that would get you any sort of well, you'll have to get any really sort of light film in focus. Thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'll have to wait until the six. You know, uh, T Max sixty four hundred comes up. There you go. Um, okay, so then there are several little cones of plastic, and I'm taking them apart right now. That leave. My little glass lens, and I can feel this is a glass lens, and it is just a simple meniscus lens, and it is on the side that goes towards the image, towards the uh, the objective side, which is towards the item that you're shooting. Is no, maybe that's the subjective side. Anyway, that facing out, it is a convex shape, and facing in, it is a concave shape. Uh, and I assume that they are, um, of different diameters or radii. Um, so you're talking about the two pieces that make up the lens? Well, it's one piece. I'm saying that it has, Oh, it's, it's one, one lens that's it, it's concave one facing piece. the film and pushes its it, convex side out to the world. Right. Exactly. Right. And, um, so I'm, I'm holding on to this. I'll probably use it on a project. Um, and, uh, so, so that's about as far as I've gotten. Um, now the shutter I left intact, um, because 
I think that I can put essentially any lens that I can, you know, that I have a mount for, and I duct tape maybe, or not duct tape, gaffer's tape, or or yeah, really, or yeah, it could be could be the right mount. Um, anything that I uh, I I, I so think pretty much any SLR lens since you have a shutter already right. will will work right right and yeah. And I could, you know, and even if I leave it wide open, it's going to be choked down by that opening where the um, where the shutter is anyway. So, so you I, want to put a bayonet mount on this thing for one of your lenses absolutely. you already have. Yeah. And, and, of course, maybe one way to get that would be to find a uh, an extension tube that's in that mount. You know, an old, a used sure. one, and, and even sure. if you need to cut it down to get it the right length and glue it on the front. Right. Yeah, so, that would be... So, uh, that, is re- that is my next step with this, is to mount a, a good lens on it. Um, and now, the, the question is, I'm not sure whether the, what the uh, flange focal distance would be versus where that shutter is. So I might have to kind of play around with a bunch of different lenses to find a flange focal distance that is far enough out that that shutter, you know, because the shutter is actually fairly, it sits right behind where the lens is. And the lens is about 35 to 40 millimeters um, from the from the uh, film plane. From the film. Well, you know, yeah. uh, M40, M42 is one of the longer flange back oh, okay so that would that would be a good one because you know, and i think i have yeah i have a zenit with a lens uh an m uh m42 lens on it so mm-hmm. or it there could be go. a came out but um came out well came out's also one of the longer yeah uh, i think that it, it's just slight ad, adaptation of that so um that is that's where i am uh on that project and and once again, you know, um, I've learned a hell of a lot by just taking apart a toy camera. Um, so uh, maybe the hammer is not the solution and maybe taking them apart. So, you know, to the point where it cannot be reassembled and that can't be used as a camera. But there's a lot of knowledge base that's in there and that is being used um, that you can learn from and, uh, and, you know, and build cameras based on. So, um, if anybody's, you know, there are a couple people who've said that they're on board with getting one of these and playing around with it. So that's an avenue of getting value from, for the cost. I mean, once again, this is a dollar 99 camera. So. Well, and also I want to comment that there's a fairly higher probability that we'll end up breaking some of these cameras in attempting to make them work better. Um, and so we could make both grams happy, really, with one, right. <laughs> one effort. Yes. <laughs> so, so anyhow, um, I have, uh, I have one similar to your other camera that you haven't described yet. Mine has got the best name, though. It's the Nikonon. And it's a it's a just a nicer design. I actually really enjoyed using it. It's got a little thumb uh, film advance that is works great, and I like the the manual quality of it. And it does have four apertures, but I think the 
realistically, I'm not going to love the lens. I've seen pictures people have taken with these, and they're actually a pretty good toy camera lens. They're actually surprisingly sharp in the center, mm -hmm. and color and contrast isn't even bad. But it's still a tiny little plastic lens, and I don't usually like those very much. So that would be where I would start. I think the rest of the camera is fine. I might take the lead weight out just because it's almost too heavy oh, for its size. Yes, you know? I should. I should say I did take. The, I did find that lead weight, and uh, and, and so I think it needs I've got some, some lead. lead in it. I think if I took it all out, it would be just ridiculously light, and it yeah. needs a little of that metal in it somewhere. But if I put a real lens some on gravitas. it, gravitas heavier. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that would be my my vote, and I did. I do have an old Russian toy camera lens that does include a shutter and aperture all in one uh 40 millimeter lens and i could just put that on there i think it would almost be perfect just as it is and i might right. but it is tempting to even push this farther and i'm gonna fool around and i wasn't sure about flange back distance it's probably we'll probably be able to get infinity focus uh and have a lens with its own you know focusing helical um but i'm not sure i can save the shutter so that leaves me with figuring out an alternative uh, shutter design or using a lens that has a shutter in it. So right. I have to make that right. decision at this point. Um, but I you know, thought it might be kind of fun. Uh, so we'll see. I think I'll try to try that. Okay. So here's what I'm going to tell you guys about that. My version of that, which is the Nikon Nikon. Yours is Nikon on. I'm getting Mine's a Nikon on. Yours is yeah, it, an Mine inferior name anyway. Ninoka. Um, yeah, see, that's that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, now, what, I I told Nick this story. Well, but, what's especially um, peculiar about the Ninoka is it's obviously out of the same exact mold as my Nikonon. Right. It's the same camera. It's exactly the same camera. Right. Maybe but a mine's detail better. Is different. But it, they changed the spelling of the name for some of them. Right. Well, apparently they probably got sued. Uh, I'm going to guess they got no, sued. They, they would have had to it. sue themselves. It's the same camera. No, no, Are you no. Saying I'm you just think, thinking you're saying you think yours is a, you're saying yours is a counterfeit Nikonon? No. What I'm saying is <laughs> that that was, that was too close to Nikon. And Nikon said that's a trademark infringement, and they said, "Oh, okay, we'll change it to Ninoka." Is that far enough away? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. One of my favorite things about it is it does have the gold um, inspection pass seal on it. Yeah, I, I nice just detail. Love that. That's yep. that. That is well. That I is. am also considering um, kind of uh, aesthetically enhancing mine, so it it just looks like an ordinary small cheap plastic camera and it could i could gussy it up make it look fancier too as well as putting a real lens on it so so that's something i'm working on okay so here's here i'm i'm toying with this idea about my toy camera um i have okay so um on the sunny 16 podcast they run the cheap shots challenge so my mm -hmm. first camera for the cheap shots challenge was a um oh was a Smina 8M. And the, the problem with that was um, it, it seemed to be generating light from the inside of it. Um, it. It was, I mean, I won't even say I had light leaks. I had fogged film um, from that. So I then um, came across a half frame Canon Demi 
um, and use that uh, for this last one. And unfortunately, it has broken to the point where it essentially was taking only every other frame. Um, the shutter wasn't was not firing on half the frames. Oh. Oh. So I'm thinking that the Ninoka may be my new cheap shots challenge. Now, the concept of the cheap cheap shots challenge is that you can buy a cheap camera and still do great work with it. And I'm, of course, proving that if you buy a cheap camera, it won't work. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm kind of not in the spirit of the cheap shots challenge, but I think I, I think just to piss Graham off, I might, um, do the Ninoka as my, um, as my cheap shots challenge camera from now on. Well, how much um, have you sunk into it so far? I, oh, uh, $9, something like okay, that. Okay. So, you, so you can look around for a $9 lens to put on it and you're in business. Oh, well, I could do that. I'm, I'm thinking it's, I'm going to shoot it as is. It kind of is a nice camera to shoot. I know it is. It's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, well, maybe and here's the filter. Just get, you know, something. Yeah. <laughs> and here's, and here's the thing is, um, many little pocket cameras like this, um, in the sixties and seventies came with little, uh, purpose made pouches. Uh, and you know, leather pouches. And I have a Canon, a Canon. Well, let's say it again. A Leica CL that has one of those pouches. And the Ninoka came with one of those pouches. And they are similar enough that I have gone to reach for the Leica. And I've picked up the Ninoka. And the only way I can tell the difference is that the Ninoka is lighter. So mm -hmm. I find that to be a very, um, uh, a, a very humorous, uh, part of, uh, of this. So, uh, so what you're saying so, is all you, all you need is the bag. You don't have to buy a Leica. You just get the, the Leica right. bag. Get the bag, yeah, right. get the bag. Yeah. And that's, um, uh, and I'll sell you my bag, you know, 70 bucks <laughs> or so, you know, it's, it says Leica on it, you know, so, right. um, it's gotta be worth something. Uh, so I'm thinking that I might, maybe I'll spray paint it or something. Uh, change the aesthetics on it, but I might just keep this and use it. Um, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really, I think I'm gonna really try and make mine look great and stand out. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's my plan. You're gonna be dazzle it, right? You're gonna that's get right. like, little exactly. jewels. I should now we're talking. Do that right. Okay, so so that's that's our uh, scamera update. Yeah, so I thought um, I I want to start steering some of these discussions into more about talking about more about actually taking pictures because that's really the whole point, right? So it's, it's all very well to like make a great camera for yourself and get the right film and all of the rest of it, but really the point of this is taking pictures. So I want to start talking about some of these same topics, but starting at the end of what kind of image you want instead of what kind of camera you're going to use work work it you know work backwards from the goal to the tool and this so this book that i'm going to recommend is not about cameras at all it has nothing at all about cameras in it 
it's about taking pictures. And I forgot why I bought it, but I have it, and I really like it. It's it's a book called On Street Photography and the Poetic Image, and it's by a couple, Alex Webb and Rebecca Norris Webb. And it's printed by Aperture Press. And it's basically a collection of their photos, which are really worth looking at in themselves, and then some uh, by other artists as well. And, and then short poetic essays on various topics that kind of talking about the way these two photographers approach what they are calling street photography, which is a wonderfully broad uh, a range of photographs of all sorts of things, not necessarily urban or street even. And I like that because what really hangs all this work together for me is not whether it, it has an old, you know, a person in a black and white street scene, but it's that they're snapshots of the actual world. They're photographs where you or observing something happening in the world and you tried to get, you know, a photograph that really, that really showed what was happening. And that it's almost a journalistic sort of cross between journalism and art, I guess, in photography. That's one of the things that cameras do especially well. And one of the most kind of uh, rich veins of photography out there. So this, sure. I find this book really, in, really interesting and useful and, I think we we should have an episode of our podcast pretty soon where we sort of work this backwards from the type of image towards what sort of camera makes sense instead of the other way around. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm good with that. I'm I'm absolutely good with that. Um, I want to. Uh, have you listened to episode uh, Sunny Sixteen, episode one twelve? Um, that's the one with Keith Moss who is a street photographer. Uh, that's yeah. where he really, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just wanted to let people know about that because um, I found that uh, to be really, I, I'll put it this way. I'm not a street photographer, um, but um, the way he talked about it made it sound attractive to me. Something that I'm, uh, I'm completely, not interested in at all he made sound very attractive so that would be another uh source on that so it is really fun and it is really good kind of training um i don't know i i think what sets it apart so there are different schools there are the sneak sneak photographers who try and be invisible so that they can get candid photos and they're the ones that are taking something more like a street portrait if there's a person in it they are letting them know or at least not hiding from them um and that can be you know from just sort of standing in the sidewalk letting people walk into the camera or actually making eye contact and sort of getting a nonverbal permission before you take a photo and i i tend towards the second i kind of like interacting with people and i like giving them the chance to say no <laughs> so that right. there's some some connection going on and it, it isn't i'm not necessarily interested in sort of the hunting approach where you're sneaking up and trying to take pictures of people without being spotted that's um i'm sure you know it can be very effective it just isn't what i like to do so uh you wanted to talk i believe about an email from ethan uh from camera dactyl and he had he wanted to talk to us about um field of view versus... yeah so he's he he, he was very complimentary um so I'm not going to read his email because it was embarrassing because he liked our show. But what I really want to say about it is um, that he added more uh, depth to our discussion of viewfinders. And he brought up some extra topics, um, which 
I guess I'm not going to try and go into them in detail right now, but it's worth considering uh, when you think about viewfinders. Um, there's a relation. So we talked about um, the need for optics to uh, to give you a, a wide angle view. And the fact is you don't technically need to. You can see a wide angle view with your eye if you spend a little time kind of absorbing the scene right that's sort of the equivalent of standing back and looking without a viewfinder you can you can see the big picture you can see any any size image if you turn your head or whatever but what a viewfinder with optics in it does is it it mimics what's going on in the camera so it gives you a better idea of the way your point of view will appear to distort perspective so that's a, a people often get confused about that topic but what it boils down to is a wide angle lens lets you get much closer to a subject than you would normally and so everything looks unusual to you when you view the image later at a normal distance so the upshot is that the more advanced optical viewfinders are great in that they give you a better reproduction of the experience of looking at the photograph later and that's really what their value is right right and uh it's because telephoto theoretically will not give you a distortion. It does give you a depth of field distortion, but it will not give you a distortion, but a wide angle by definition has to distort in well, order to that's, get that's not the quite the right in. way to that's not quite the right way to phrase it. Both of them, neither one is distorting the image from a point of view of perspective. So perspective is only determined by the distance you are away from the subject. It has nothing to do with the lens. What the lens does is it allows you to see an image from a perspective that you normally wouldn't be able to see it. So without a wide-angle lens, if you put your face right up against someone else's face, you're not going to see what's off to the far left and right of them because you know your eyes can't see all the way off to the side like that. But the lens allows you to do that. So okay. the perspective hasn't changed, but you're presenting it on the finished print at a viewing angle that you can't normally achieve without the lens. So it looks distorted to the human who's looking at it, even though the perspective is technically accurate. Does that make sense? You just broke my brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can test I, it out. I think it, I think it makes sense, but, uh, but I had to close my eyes and really concentrate on what you were saying. So, um, and that reminds so, yeah. me, I, I got, I got something wrong in an early episode. So here's where we print the retraction. Uh, okay. I was using the term nodal point incorrectly. Um, uh, a lot of it's commonly used as if it defines the point where the light coming out of a lens is at its you know most tiny narrow point before it starts expanding again to project itself on the film. And that isn't actually what the nodal point is. That's I forget what that is. That's you know that's the tiny little point at the waist of the hourglass. Nodal point is some technical point that's a little bit away from that point <laughs> oh really and it's a more sophisticated concept that you need to read about uh to understand so i'm not going to try and explain it off the top of my head but it's different nick nick we're a good team you read about it and i'll just <laughs> let you <laughs> no i already did read about it but i forgot it again so <laughs> I, I invite all our readers to look it up because it's a little bit different of a concept than i thought it was okay Okay. Um, 
Uh, also, I, I I will say um, uh, I've gotten quite a few um, comments recently about oh gee, you know, on Instagram. I didn't know you had a podcast. I didn't know he had a podcast. Um, and part of that is um, I made a website to make sure that you guys know when new podcasts come along. I just got a brand new listing yesterday. It was a brand new listing from this new podcast called the Film Photography Podcast. So, uh, but uh, if you go and visit the film pod, uh, filmpodcastnetwork.com, filmpodcastnetwork.com, you will find a listing of uh, a bunch of different um, film and experimental photography uh, web um, uh, or excuse me, uh, podcasts. And, uh, so you can make sure that you are up on the latest. There is one that I know that's going on right now. That's not on it. Um, but, uh, Neil Piper has started one, uh, that's not on it, but, um, I think he's kind of given it a, a, a test right now. Um, so, um, uh, and it's not really widely available yet but uh take it take some time go over to that and uh and see if there's anything new any uh flicker um comments or anybody you want to talk about oh i don't you know I've, I've been roaming around finding interesting cameras and most of them i think are ones you are already discovered so uh, i don't have any to add right okay now. you want to thank robbie yeah, thanks again to Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios for composing and creating the theme music that we use throughout the show. It's really it's really fun.
Can we not do a sub to our podcast? I, 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 I think there's something wrong with us. No, I think that's just how long it takes us. That, that's the way it is.